and my ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord. As high as the heavens above the earth are my thoughts from your thoughts and my ways from your ways. That's a good song to introduce our scripture for today, Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And I am determined today <laughs> to finish chapter 12 of the book of Romans, so bear with me. I've been here longer than I intended to be, but I have to say, I don't know about you, I am really, really enjoying, hello, it's good to see you. I am really enjoying uh, Romans chapter 12, almost more than the rest of the book of Romans. Paul has been instructing us how we should live in response to all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's been giving us application for all of the theological teaching he's done from chapter one to chapter 11. The question he's attempting to answer now in Romans chapter 12 is simple, how now shall we live? How should we live in response to all that God has done? Knowing that God loves us, knowing that God has given his very best to us and for us, knowing that God has delivered us and is delivering us. Out of gracious hearts, Paul asked the question, how now should we respond? The first thing Paul tells us to do today in chapters, in verse 16, is to be of the same mind toward one another. Think the same thoughts about one another. And how should we think toward one another? Paul said that we should think of one another the same way I have admonished you to think of your own self in verse two. Think of others with sound judgment. Say to yourself, I am loved by God and so is my brother. I am deserving of honor and so is my brother. I am a sinner saved by grace and so is my sister. That I can and I do fall from time to time and so will my brother. That I am a work in progress and so is my brother. That I need support from time to time and so does my brother. Paul calls us here to be of the same mind toward one another, to give one another the benefit of the doubt, just as we so generously ascribe good intent to ourselves, to be as patient with others as we are with our own selves. In short, Paul is calling us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's what Paul is saying today that we should not be haughty in mind, that we should not be filled with pride and conceit, that we should not take ourselves and our opinions more seriously than the opinions and the thoughts of others, that we should never overestimate our own contribution while denigrating the contributions of others in the body. That we should not disregard, that we should not disengage those who have no religious status 
among us, but we should, Paul says, we should associate with the lowly. This idea flies in the face of what it means to be a networker, what it means to network. When we network, we're trying to identify and we're trying to befriend people who can help us reach our goals, people who can benefit us personally. That's, that's networking. Seeking to gain influence by our associations. And the person who does this has no time, has no energy for those who cannot add value to their lives, to their agenda. But Paul says these are the very people we should associate with. Associate with the lowly, the down and out, the needy and the underserved. And when we do this, we come to find that not only does our company benefit them, but the lowly also adds something of value to our lives. It's a win-win. Yet when we read Paul's exhortation, most of us immediately imagine ourselves standing among the lowly to feed them, to counsel them, to advise them, to clothe them, and to help them. That's why Paul wants us to be among the lowly, because we can be a blessing to the lowly. They can benefit from our natural and our spiritual resources. That may be part of the reason for certain. But another reason for us to associate with people of low status in the world is because they have a blessing to give to us as well. You may ask the question, how does it benefit me then to hang out with people whom the world deems to be losers? How does that benefit me? How does it benefit me to hang out with people who have no direction, seemingly no ambition, no accomplishments? How could that possibly help me? And I would argue that those low in status may not have any natural resource to share with you. The lowly can and the lowly often do prove to have something significant to offer to the church. They have insight. Because of their difficulties and because of their failures, because they have drank deeply from the cup of affliction, the lowly have a perspective that is born of difficult experience. They have a front row seat at the table of pain and of suffering. They have something, some insight to offer to us. While it may be apparent that the lowly have a lot to learn about how the world works, the lowly also have a bird's eye view into how the world doesn't work. And to know the one is as good as to know the other. You see, if we associate only with those who exhibit potential and those who can produce success, if we seek only to befriend those who have made it in life, the up and coming, those who have arrived at good stations in the world, we may very well learn how to work the systems of this world, but we will become indifferent to the broken, the hurting, and the poor, the lowly. Wisdom is the great teacher. Wisdom teaches us both positive and negative lessons. Wisdom shows us the path to the good life, 
but wisdom also reminds us that very often good lives are built on the backs of the poor. That the lowly are not always lowly by choice, but by greed and by theft, by hatred and by sidelining the competition. That not all the lowly are actually lazy, but they've been marginalized to the point. <laughs> this world has so denigrated and devalued them that it's difficult for them to find an opportunity in the world. Wisdom teaches both lessons. Wisdom says, work hard and accomplish much. Whatever you find for your hands to do, do it with all your might. But then wisdom says in the book of Proverbs, even after you've worked as hard as you can, there is no guarantee that you will benefit from your labor. That's wisdom. The good and the bad, the positive and the negative, not all the lowly are lowly by choice. That's the dark side of this world that we live in. The principles that govern this man-made world are not very complicated. But those principles are not always equally accessible to all people. And the lowly can provide us a clear picture of how this world does not work for all people. And how the systems that govern everything from commerce to healthcare are designed in such a way that leaves collateral damage in its wake. Wisdom. And when we spend time among the lowly, we learn these lessons. That this man-made world that we inhabit is much more complex than we might imagine. Things are not often what they seem to be. The wealthy are not always wealthy for good cause and for the right reasons. I learned that lesson from a well-to-do old woman in Crown Point, Indiana. I'll never forget her. She taught me such a valuable lesson. I was driving for a medical company. They told me to go and pick this woman up every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday because she had to go to dialysis. I pulled up in front of her house and I wondered to myself, why in the world would a person of such means need someone to come and drive them to the dialysis center. It looks like she could order a limousine. Her house was so nice. And every day, every time, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I'd pick her up and we'd have great conversations and she'd tell me about the golf club she used to be a part of and the nice meals and restaurants she's visited, how she's traveled around the world. I enjoyed her conversation very much. One evening, I was taking her home. And for some reason, completely out of the blue, she asked me a question. She said, Calvin, how do you imagine I got my money? Very unusual question, very unusual for a person with means to ask any question about money. And I hesitated because I didn't understand what she was trying to get at. How do you imagine I got my money? I said, well, ma'am, I don't, I don't know. You're doing pretty well. I guess your husband must have been a good worker and everything. It, he did well for you guys, and he was an upstanding person in the community, apparently, and you, you all did well, I guess. She says to me, well, drive around the corner. I'm going to show you something. I drove around the corner, and she showed me this house that looked like the White House. It really looks like the White House. Lush garden, beautiful uh, home, pillars in the front of the house. And she said, you know, my dad bought that for me when I was first married. I said, oh, that's a beautiful house. Yeah, yeah. 
So I downsized a little bit going around the corner to this other big house, I downsized a little bit. My family got our money because my father was one of the chief men with Al Capone. And he was responsible to go over to Chicago, first of all, and to strong arm the businesses to put slot machines in their businesses. And he was also responsible to pay off the people, the, the, the officials in Crown Point to make sure they didn't bother our whiskey stills. And, and that was how we, we got so rich. And she looked at me and said, never imagine for a moment that riches mean virtue. There are many people who are very well off who do not deserve what they have. Wow, what a lesson. Well, I don't know why she taught me that lesson. She just wanted, wanted me to know not all money is good money. And just because I look like I'm well off and I'm an upstanding person does not mean that's the case. Not everything in this world is as it appears. <laughs> that old lady taught me that things are not always what they appear to be. And she also showed me the value of Paul's admonition to not be wise in your own estimation. To not regard myself as fully understanding how the world works and how I ought to proceed in life. Don't be too wise in your own estimation because this man-made world and the people who control it have created over centuries a multifaceted system full of secret doors and subtle nuance that hide atrocities that shelter the powerful from accountability. This is the world in which you live. It's not all roses. And none of us may ever fully understand just how this world functions. Only the self-declared wise would ever imagine themselves to be in the know. So do not be wise in your own estimation as it relates to the natural and the social world because things are not always as they appear. But most importantly, more importantly, do not be wise in your own estimation as it pertains to spiritual things which are far more complicated than things you can see with your eyes. We all understand this, that there is a world within our world that mankind does not control. It is a world of spirit where neither rules of nature, nor rules of time, nor rules of science can prevail. It is a world filled with seeming inconsistencies, contradiction, and fluidity. It is the world, it is the realm where God presides, and where rules do not apply. But God does what he wills, when and how he wills, and he answers to no one. And let me just say that there is no saint more dangerous than the one who considers himself as expert in spiritual things. The one who considers herself to be in the know as to what God will do, what God will not do, and how God might respond. The realm of the spirit is filled with inconsistencies and the only thing, or the only person who is consistent in that realm is God himself. And the only way for a person to become comfortable in the realm of spiritual things is by trusting God. Because in the realm of the spirit, trust is essential. 
because the rules and the way you experience God's decisions in this world is always in flux. Trouble to the saint who declares, I know the way. Because every day spent in the kingdom of God confirms over and over again that the way Jesus Christ is taking us and our lives is a way that we have not been before. You cannot possibly know the way. Trouble to the person who calls himself wise. We are students and we are disciples in need of a tutor all the days of our lives as it relates to life in the spirit. Never consider yourself to be wise in your own estimation because life in the spirit turns all the world's philosophies upside down. So that while in the world it is good and right to seek vengeance for the wrongs perpetrated against me, in the spirit Paul admonishes us that we should never repay evil for evil to anyone. Turns the whole thing upside down. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. That we should never seek to punish anyone for wrongs committed against us, no matter how severe the damage, no matter how flagrant the offense. Paul says that the children of God do not seek retribution. We do not hold grudges. We do not sit up late at night plotting and planning our revenge. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. But we respect what is right in the sight of all people. In other words, we respect the rules of engagement. We respect the rules of civility and the rule of law in whatever setting we find ourselves. We do not waste our time. We do not waste our energy trying to change the broken systems of this world. We are not on a mission to make this world a better place. We do not engage even in political battles. Instead, in a nation like ours, we vote for the way we think things should go, but if we do not get our way, we go with the flow. We respect what is right in the sight of all people. Notice, Paul is not instructing us to respect what is right. Paul is instructing us to respect what society deems to be right, even when we know from a biblical perspective that they are totally wrong. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. We are to respect the general consensus of the society among whom we dwell. That's a hard one, isn't it? And Paul knows that there will be some general consensus in society that simply does not sit well with the believer. He already knows that. Paul knows that there are going to be some issues upon which we will not be able to maintain silent compliance. He already knows that. So he leaves us room to upset the apple cart every now and again, to make our voices heard, to stand up for our principles by offering this little caveat in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. If possible, it may not always be possible to go along and get along, but if possible, if my society starts making rules that require me to deny my faith, then it is no longer possible to follow peace. 
If the world starts infringing on my freedom to think and to believe as I see fit, then it may, long, it may no longer be possible to follow peace. I can think of a myriad of scenarios where peace in this world is simply not possible for the believer. But I can also think of myriad more scenarios where peace is possible. Even if the effects of the world's philosophies upon the culture is detrimental, we saints do not want to get ourselves enthralled in the mire of culture wars and political factions. It is not good for kingdom business. We need to be able to keep the door of the church open to any and to all comers where every world faction and sect and political position feels wanted and welcomed. We must keep open lines of communication open with every group and with all people. And that is why we want to do all within our power to get along with as many groups as possible so that we can proclaim the good news to as many people as possible, if possible. As far as it depends on you, another caveat, because peace is a two-way street. And if there will be peace, all parties must agree so that peace is not totally dependent upon the believer. The world must also agree to be at peace with us. And if the world does not agree, then there can be no peace. Not because we didn't want peace, but because the world refuses to accept us as we present ourselves and our faith. If possible, as far as depends on you, you do your part to keep peace. And peace is not only the absence of war. Peace is the presence of goodwill. And in this sense for the believer, peace is always possible because we should always and we should only will the very best for all mankind. But that peace in the sense of the absence of fighting is not always possible. That peace in the sense of always agreeing is not always possible. Because the world may not always will the very best for us. But as far as it depends on us, Paul says, peace is the goal. Peace is the objective of every believer. An environment free of animosity and free of rancor, accusations and threats. Our will and our desire is for the lion to lie down with the lamb, for the child and the serpent to become friends. That's what we desire, peace. But that day of peace has not come. That day of peace will not come until Christ returns. And in the meantime, Paul admonishes us to will for that kind of peace where men lay down their guns and take up their crosses in self-sacrificial service to one another. And as far as it depends on us, we stand in the world as the perfect example of what true peace looks like. We seek and we desire to create a world that fosters peace. As we, verse 19, never take our revenge but we leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We do not seek vengeance, we do not seek retribution because we trust that God is keeping the score and that every man will receive the reward for the deeds done in his body. That God will repay every person 
who has done us harm. Because of the grace of God, because of all that God has done for us, because of all that God has given to us, we are not a defensive people. That's why I hate to hear those evangelists on television, Christian leaders talking about how the world is out to get us and we, we need to be on our guard. We are not a defensive people. We are not a fearful people. We do not have thin skin that demands retribution at the slightest or even the greatest offenses. We are not mad at the world and we are not mad at the world's inhabitants. Paul said that because you're not mad, because you love your neighbor, you must not withhold what is needful to your neighbor, not even to your enemies. He says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. That turns the world's philosophy upside down. It looks like if my enemy is hungry, I'll just watch him pine away until my enemy is my enemy no more. Paul says, no, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. Why not, Paul said, why not? Unless you're afraid. Why not? Unless you wish him ill. If your enemy is in need, help him, Paul says. Help him because you recognize that while he may be wrong, sometimes you are just as wrong. Do not magnify his offense unless you also magnify your own. Be of the same mind toward him as you are toward yourself. And in so doing, Paul says, you will heap burning coals on his head. Someone said that success is the best revenge. But Paul says here that love is the best revenge. Because love strikes deep into the heart of the sensitive soul causing strong conviction. Love goes even beyond the soul of my enemy that is hurting me and strikes deep behind the enemy's lines, my truest enemy's lines. So that my enemy's abuse becomes a gateway for me to access the dark spirits of this world and to destroy the kingdom of darkness from the inside. Every time my enemy speaks a word against me, he opens up the door to the dark world for my love to shine in. When my enemy opens himself to me in hatred and in bitterness, I do see beyond him to the unclean forces that seek to do me harm. And I excuse my neighbor for his offense. And I force him to reconsider his decision to host such unbearable and destructive forces within his own heart. I frustrate him. And thereby I threaten the dark spirit that caused him to act against me. And I destabilize my true enemy, all because I loved my neighbor. All because I stayed in solidarity with him even when he sought to tear away from me. I held my enemy close even when his knife stuck deep within my heart. Because in the realm of spirit, my neighbor is not my enemy. But my neighbor is a victim who is animated by forces well beyond his ability to harness or to control. I forgive my neighbor. I forgive his offense 
And in this way, I declare to that kingdom of darkness that I will not leave him alone to be devoured and manipulated by his lies and his deceptions, that I will stand with my enemy and stay in his company with the hope that someday he will see my light. Reject the dark influences that have been trying to destroy God's work in the world since the very dawn of time. Our only enemy is our spiritual enemy. No man and no woman is our enemy, only victims. When we see our enemies through spiritual eyes, and we begin to recognize that the strategy of my adversary is to use them to stop me. Mm. Then we don't pray against our enemies. We pray against the dark force that is compelling him to act in such a way. And through this strategy, I do not allow myself to be overcome by evil, but I overcome evil with good. How now shall we live? We shall be hospitable. We shall be loving to one another. We shall honor one another. We shall not be haughty. We shall not consider ourselves to be wise in our own estimation. <clears throat> we shall make our abode with those who are lowly. We should not seek the highest seat. How now shall we live? because we have nothing to lose and we have nothing to gain in this world. We are free <laughs> to love and to be loved, to be open to all of humanity so that they might see our light and glorify God who is in us. Let's pray. How now shall we live, Father? considering all the great things you have done for us, the doors that you have opened for us, the ways that you have made, the good gifts that you have given to us. You have promised us in your word, Father God, that nothing can separate us from your love. You have promised us in your word that all things belong to us and we belong to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ belongs to you. Therefore, we have nothing to lose. No resource, no friendships, no status, and we have nothing to gain. No power and no influence. We have Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself is enough for us. My prayer for myself and for all of us today is that you would give us hearts of contentment. That you would drive far from us our desperate need to win, our desperate need to prove ourselves, our desperate need to be right. But help us to walk humbly before you, O oh God. To see this world through your eyes to not be influenced by outside darker forces in this world that we might call our neighbor and our brother our enemy. 
Give us wisdom, O oh God. Give us steadfast trust, steadfast trust in you and in you alone. Bless us, O oh God, as we seek to do your will in the way that you have prescribed. Forgive us for our anger, forgive us for our bitterness. Forgive us for our need to seek revenge. Teach us how to love this dying world the way that you have loved us. In Jesus' name.